If you have a Bible this morning, and you'll turn with our scripture reading, we're going to take a reading from the book of Genesis, chapter 44. Book of Genesis, chapter 44. And we'll begin our reading in verse 12, and read down to verse 34, which is the end of the chapter. Again, we're looking at the book of Genesis, chapter 44, starting in verse 12 and reading to the end of the chapter. Now, the context of this is that Joseph has yet to reveal himself before his brothers. He, they came back and to get more food. He has sent them back and filled their sacks back again with their money. And then he also put a cup of his in the youngest son's sack. And has made it appear as though the youngest brother has stolen this cup. And so a servant rides out to find them. And... Once they find the brothers, they look through their belongings, and the brothers are confident. They're not, you know, they've not done anything wrong. Little did they know that Joseph has set this up. And they open the sack where uh, Benjamin's, and they find this cup there. And so where we begin a reading is the moment where they open that sack, they find this cup, and sheer panic falls upon Uh, the brothers. And so we'll begin reading in verse 12 to the end of the chapter. It says this, And he searched and began at the eldest and left at the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And they rent their clothes and laid at every man his ass and returned to the city. And Judah and his brethren came to Joseph's house, for he was yet there, and they fell before him on the ground. And Joseph said unto them, What deed is this that you have done? What ye not that such a man as I can can certainly divine? And Judah said, What shall we say unto my Lord? What shall we speak? How shall we clear ourselves? God hath found out the iniquity of thy servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also with whom the cup is found. And he said, God forbid that I should do so, but the man in whose hand the cup is found, he shall be my servant. And as for you, get you up in peace unto your father. Then Judah came near unto him and said, O my Lord, let thy servant, I pray thee, speak a word in my Lord's ears. And let not thine anger burn against thy servant, for thou art even as Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said unto my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a child of his old age, a little one. And his brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother, and his father loveth him. And thou saidest unto thy servants, Bring him down unto me, that I may set mine eyes upon him. And we said unto my Lord, The lad cannot leave his father. For if he should leave his father, his father would die. And thou saidest unto thy servants, Except your youngest brother come down with you, you shall see my face no more. And it came to pass, when we came up unto thy servants, Excuse me. And it came to pass when we came up unto thy servants, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And our father said, Go again and buy us a little food. And we said, We cannot go down if our youngest brother be with us, then we will go down. For we may not see the man's face except our younger brother be with us. And thy servant, my father, said unto us, You know that my wife bare me two sons. And the one went out from me, and I said, Surely he is torn in pieces, and I saw him not since. And if you take this also from me, and mischief befall him, you shall bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to the grave. Now therefore, when I come to thy servant my father, and the lad be not with us, seeing that his life is bound up in the the lad's life, it shall come to pass... When he seeth that the lad is not with us, that he will die. And thy servants shall bring down the gray hairs of thy servant of our father with sorrow to the grave. 
For thy servant became surety for the lad unto my father, saying, If I bring him not unto thee, then I shall bear the blame to my father forever. Now therefore I pray thee, let thy servant abide instead of the lad a bondman to my lord, and let the lad go up with his brethren. For how shall I go up to my father, and the lad be not with me? Lest peradventure I see the evil that shall come on my father. I'll conclude our reading this morning. That's reading Genesis chapter 44, verses 12 through 34. And sorry for some of the mistakes in the reading. I struggled to read it this morning. The title of our message today is The Sight and Sound of True Repentance. The Sight and the Sound of True Repentance. A few weeks ago, if, for those of you that are just joining us this morning and you've not been to our prior services on Sunday morning, I felt inclined to preach a, a series of sermons about repentance and forgiveness. And our first lesson, or our first uh, message was about sin and how horrible sin was. And we traced back both Jacob's sin, Joseph's, or excuse me, Joseph's brother's sins, And the following week, we talked about the pain and consequences, the scars of sin. What those look like and how they're completely unanticipated. That you cannot predict when we sin who it's going to hurt, how it's going to hurt them, and how far-reaching that our sin is. Last week, we talked a little bit about trauma. Whenever you had somebody sin against you, or perhaps even just had unfortunate events befall you by the providence of God, what that's like and how we experience trauma and how we should respond to trauma and how Joseph is this wonderful example to us as to what we should do when we're fighting or drowning perhaps in the midst of traumatic experiences, be they relational, be they a sufferer of loss through family, be it through terrible pain that we actually feel Joseph's response to each step of the sin that was performed against him is a wonderful pattern, an example for us of how we ought to respond when things happen to us. And now we kind of turn the chapter a little bit, or we turn the page a little bit. We've spent a lot longer than I anticipated talking about sin and its consequences and its effects and how we ought to respond. And now we want to kind of turn this next place to repentance, Because at the core of this doctrine or concept of forgiveness is this idea of repentance. And we want to look at what repentance looks like and what it sounds like. And we might note, as we have in previous occasions, that repentance is not the same as an apology. Especially in our day, as Words have become to mean nothing. I'll pause for a moment and remind us, words ought to mean something. You should not say something if you don't mean it. You ought not to just carry on in accordance with cultural expectations, but when people think of the words that you speak, they ought to know that they're, they're thoughtful and they're meaningful and intentional that they're not cavalier in their response. And so before we've ever had an attempt to consider the results of our sins or the consequences of our sins, if we're just looking to move on from an unpleasant disruption of our relationship and we're just wanting to say, well, I'm sorry, let's just move on. Let's not move on. Let's not a, a mere apology pacify because in truth it does nothing to the consequences or the reality of sin what God desires from those of us who sin against him and against someone else is genuine repentance that biblical word has been largely distorted today or has been even at times perhaps among us, assume to be known what it is. But I want to say this morning, repentance experienced is one of the deepest things that can happen to a person. 
When you and I repent, truly repent, whether it's towards God or someone else, it is a earth-shattering, deep experience that we have. And it touches every area of our being. It's something not done passively, whimsically, thoughtlessly. Repentance is very intentional act. One that truly to have it be satisfactory, God must help us to do it. Not only at the moment of conversion, but also thereafter. And so this morning, I want to try to draw a balance here today and acknowledge from the very get-go that repentance is something that God helps us to do. And yet, we are not altogether passive when we repent. We must also, with our own volition, yield to and actively participate in repentance. So this morning, what is repentance? I'm not going to spend, we could spend a long time trying to nail down a, a functional definition and certainly I've looked to various Greek definitions and Hebrew definitions and, and so forth and I don't want to get too caught up in technicalities so as to lose perhaps uh, the heart of what I'm trying to say this morning but I did write down something that I want to read to you this morning. Repentance is an action of the heart indiscernible by man. It is a total change of the attitude of the heart towards one's behavior, words, beliefs, or even a person's own being. God alone can see repentance. Now, I'm not going to talk a lot this morning about what repentance is because that would sidetrack what I feel like I need to bring to you this morning. But I want to add something to what I have often said and perhaps have left incomplete. At its core, repentance, and we've even showed you this visibly, is when a person is headed one direction, and they change, and they head the opposite direction. And in that, visual is certainly true. But I'm afraid that it depicts a rather shallow change. Because in truth, repentance is more than what that visual can illustrate. Because repentance is not only that we are perhaps occupied with a certain thought process and behavior that we are desirous of, that there is an intensity and an enjoyment in what we are doing, a resolve and a pride to continue this direction and this way in our lives. And when a true repentance has occurred and this turning has taken place, Not only are we just heading a different direction, but in addition, we abhor the fact that we were ever faced this direction to begin with. It's not only saying, look, I was wrong and I'm sorry, but there is a deep mourning and pain in the fact that I ever considered, let alone indulge in the behavior that I was going Repentance, when truly experienced, leaves the person genuinely broken, looking for how could I, how can I now live with myself knowing what I have done and the pride in which I stood in the behavior that I was performing. It is not as the world depicts and perhaps as I have uh, inaccurately depicted or rather insufficiently depicted just a whimsical, you know, I'm living in sin. I drink alcohol and get drunk sometimes. I make decisions that are selfish. I misuse my money. I look at things that I shouldn't and I speak to way people I shouldn't. But you know what? It's not pragmatic to do that anymore or it's not beneficial to me to live that way anymore. I'll feel better about myself and I can live with my conscience if I stop doing those things and rather choose to live a life that's better. That's not repentance. That's not deep, significant, biblical repentance. Repentance is when it leaves, I'll say it this way, when we are, have changed our directions and yet 
the memory of how we used to be is so painful to us, even after we have lived for a while this new direction, it still pains us so deeply that we still ask God for forgiveness for something he has already forgiven us for. Have you ever done that before? Have you ever done things in your life, sinned in your life, and then through God's word or through some way God rebukes you of your sin, and you do genuinely repent of your sin, and you have, God has made it known to you that you are forgiven of your sin, and yet as you walk through this life, Satan or your own conscience or you're just your, your normal memory. Perhaps you see a picture of your family or yourself during that time of your life. And it triggers the way that you used to live. And that triggering causes you to still feel the guilt and the weight of what you've done. And you're compelled to say, God, I know you have forgiven me. But how can I stand forgiven when I was that way? That is the degree to which the Bible demonstrates to us repentance over and over and over. It is not, well, I know this hurts somebody and they might be mad at me and I don't want that to happen, so I better stop. Or if I don't say I'm sorry, I'm going to lose the benefits of other people wanting to be around me, so I better stop. All the while had the person not been caught. Or if there had been no pressure placed upon them as a result of persisting in that way, they would have never changed. That's not repentance. Think about whenever you repented of your sins, whenever you're lost. Were there not many times that you came to God out of remorse? Absolutely. Out of reflection. Of the words that you have heard and the warnings that you have been given. Where the preacher gets up and says, unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. And that reality hangs over you and you feel bad in thought of what might be to come. And those feelings, though perhaps in their own right important, do not demonstrate a repentant heart. Here, the scripture that we read to you this morning, it shows us the last... No, no, let me back up for just a moment. In our definition, we said that God can only see repentance, and that's true. God is the only one that look, can look upon my heart and your heart and say, this person has sufficiently repented of their sins. And so the world has taken that reality, and they have said, if anybody demands more than an apology, they're putting themselves in the place of God. They're being judgmental. They're being hypocritical. And they think that they are better than the rest of us. And thus, they have tried to silence anybody from saying, prove your repentance by saying, well, you're no better than me or only God can see my heart. Who are you to judge me? Listen, I'll remind you of a biblical truth that's very important. Jesus mentions it multiple times in his ministry. And I'll read one verse, or excuse me, three verses that illustrate this in the book of Luke chapter 6. It says this. For a good tree bringeth not forth corrupt fruit, neither doth a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. For every tree is known by his own fruit. For of thorns men do not gather figs, nor of a bramble bush gather they grapes. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaketh. So let's consider this for a moment. I'm indulged, neck deep in sin, loving it. God, through a means that we may talk about in a moment, convicts me deeply of that. And I genuinely hate that I ever did it, that I ever defended it, that I ever lived that way, and it causes me deep distress that I ever did it. 
And I am now devoted to living the extreme opposite of how I used to live. Let me ask you a question. Even though only God can see the condition of my heart has done that, do you think that it will be noticeable to others in my words and in my actions? Absolutely. This scripture teaches us that what is in our hearts makes its way out into our actions and into our words. And a man and a woman cannot say, Yes, I know I talk this way. Yes, I know I act this way. Yes, I know I have an attitude that is this way, but I'm not really that way. There is nothing biblical that backs up that mentality. Rather, it's the extreme opposite. What do they say? I won't get this right. If they quack like a duck and they walk like a duck, guess what they are? They're a duck, right? And that is surely true with the unrepentant person. When a person is unrepentant, let me share with you what often their attitude demonstrates. It's not often in their words, but very often it can be found in their attitudes. One like this, they're giving you an apology, but then they explain all the reasons why they did to you what they did. And it really circles back to being your fault. I'm really sorry that I said that, but in essence, you provoked me by the things that you said. Let me assure you that person has not truly repented of what they did. The example we'll get to in here in a moment, I'll have you hold on to because I don't want to get into it too far. This is exactly what his brothers do. Notice that his brothers do not say, you know, while we were being raised by our dad, he was very preferential. He treated that one brother better than he treated me. So the reason why we acted out of anger all starts because of my childhood. Is that the voice of repentance? That is not the voice of repentance. That is someone who has a deep guilt and to go along with that guilt, a deeper sense of pride. There are, in this very pulpit, 30 years ago, I got a tape one time. There was a sermon preached here titled, I Was Wrong. Some of you may remember that. I was wrong. And the preacher said, rightly, three of the hardest words that a person can ever utter is, I was wrong. No qualifiers. Listen, in a marriage, that's not a good thing. Because if you cannot, if you cannot repent and confess sin to your spouse, what, what much less do you think you shall be able to do to other people? Or much less to God whom is invisible. Sufficient to be repentant. No, I hope it's regular. Do you know why you need to often say I was wrong? Because you are often wrong. Did you know that? I am too. Maybe not in the accuracy of my words, but in the intentions of my heart, in the tone of my voice, in the resentful actions that I can take against somebody that is just a minor slight to that person. And so it ought to be a common occurrence among us. To say, you know what? I was wrong. Will you forgive me for what I have done to you? Rather than erecting this wall of pride and just letting sometimes time just cause our minds to forget about what took place. That's what often we hope, right? Is I can say something harsh and that person can respond something harsh and then three or four days later we just all pretend like it never happens. But what it slowly does is it builds brick by brick a wall of division between us and other people and between us and God. No, God is a God of transparency. God is transparent to us in many ways. And we ought to be transparent to God and to others, especially in the area of sin. Here, his brothers, that's not 
the voice of repentance does not cast blame on somebody else. It does not demand forgiveness. Have you ever seen something like this happen where somebody has committed a really, really significant sin against somebody? Maybe they stole a whole lot of money. Maybe they tried to cover some scandal up, failed, and it was revealed. And then the wrongdoer, seeking to avoid any retribution or any pain or consequence, rushes to the one they have offended and says, I'm really sorry. And that person that has been hurt in that moment is still reeling from the trauma of what has occurred. They haven't even processed their own emotions. They're in such deep pain, their mind is just in a spiral trying to grasp and comprehend what exactly has occurred. And in that moment, they perhaps act out in anger or in a sense of get away from me, which is not necessarily a sinful thing to say, right? Step away so that I don't sin against you. And then whenever the offender perceives that, they begin to say things like, well, God says you have to forgive me. And they begin to demand somebody else's forgiveness. Let me say this. A person who has truly repented never demands forgiveness. Because you are the one that have done the wrong. No, what these brothers demonstrate here, and they hadn't even done wrong. They had been set up. But through a series of previous circumstances, they had done wrong. And they attributed the situation to their sin against Joseph. They acknowledged at the very beginning... All of this has come upon us because of what we did to our brother Joseph. And so now, this series of situations, they don't know if Benjamin really stole it or not, but what they are determined to do is they go before Joseph and they plead for him, uh, with him for forgiveness, and they say, Joseph, not only is our brother going to be your servant, but we are so sorry for what we have done. We will all serve you to make up for this wrong that has been done to you. You see, they don't, they don't have any consideration for saying, hey, we'll give you one of our brothers, or hey, we'll restore the cup, here's some extra money, we'll give you double payment like we offered to do last time, and then let's bygones be bygones. And if you don't do that, you're the unjust one. They don't come with that attitude. And neither do we have the right to come with that attitude towards somebody who we have wronged. And if we come with that attitude, it's likely because we have a diminished view of our own sin. We have forgotten that all of this process is a result of my sin. I don't have the right to set the terms for my forgiveness no more than a prisoner in the jail here in Warren County has a right to set the verdict to his own trial. And say, well, once I serve a couple years, that's it. Because what I have found about myself and is true in human nature is that we always treat our own sin much less significantly than we ought to. And we look more harshly at the sins of other people than we ought to. So the temptation in my heart is to say, you know what, here are sufficient terms for you to forgive me. And very often it costs me very little to nothing. No, a person who is truly repentant doesn't demand forgiveness. They don't act in a hasty manner. No, they come in abject surrender and say, I was wrong. And in essence says, it's in your court now. And if you choose not to forgive me, I understand. Because even my repentance... Please hear this. 
Even my repentance does not restore what sin has stolen. Think of it like this for a visual. If I went and I stole a million dollars from a bank and I went on a spending spree and I spent tons of that money and I got caught and I come before the courts and I say, listen, in the Bible it says if I repent that you're supposed to forgive me. And I let's say that I truly had repented of my sin. God is my witness. He knows. And I'm demonstrating in my actions as much as possible to the world. I truly have repented. Does that restore the million dollars to the person who had it stolen from him? Not at all. They're still absent of what was taken. And with my meager means, there is nothing my words can do to restore what has been taken. Now let's use that same analogy to say this. What if a person, what if I stole that million dollars and I put it underneath my, my bed, under my mattress, isn't that where they put money today? That's where I put my money, right? Under, under your mattress is where you're supposed to put it. Put it under your mattress and I get caught. And I come before the court and I say, I'm really Really, really sorry that I did it. And they say, okay, to demonstrate your sorrow, to demonstrate that you have truly repented, give us the money back. And I say, no. So I can make something right. I have the power to restore, and I choose not to. Is that repentance? No, it's not. Let me tell you a way that this comes up in our culture today. Two people get divorced. Two Christians. We'll say two Christians get divorced. And one of them is saying, please, I want to get back. I know we're not perfect. I have sinned against you. And I want to make things right. And I want to restore our broken relationship. And the other person says, no. And time passes. And on one hand, one spouse is saying, please, let's make amends. And the other person says, no, I refuse. And so what I have seen happen before is that a church will come to that that spouse who is unwilling to reconcile and say, listen, the Bible teaches us that you're to reconcile with this person. That's the biblical response to sin and to this situation. You have no, you're in violation of God's commandments explicitly by doing what you're doing. And I've had people look at me and say, me and God, I've made peace with God and he has forgiven me, but I'm not getting back together with that person. I have no hesitation in saying, well, then you've never repented and made things right with God. No more than the man who has the million dollars at his house who refuses to restore what is right has made things right with God. See, repentance does not set the terms of its own forgiveness, especially when there's a chance to yet make things right. That can be really difficult. Those can be difficult situations. I've shortened it, I've simplified it quite a bit, but in reality, when this lives out, there's a lot of pain and piles of emotion and history layered all over these situations. And they're hard, and yet, genuine repentance has discernible fruits to the world. We can see it when somebody has genuinely repented. Here, I want to to hit on one more thing and I'll be done this morning. When a person is living in sin, persisting in sin especially, very often it's we become blind to what we're doing. So I think of David. In some sense, 
David's sin with Bathsheba and the preceding months after that are strange. And in another sense, they're not strange at all. It's strange from one vantage point because up to that point in David's life through 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, David is this godly man whose heart is truly seeking after God's own interest, is truly seeking after the welfare of his people, is truly even seeking and loving his own enemy. And so we see this display of godliness from chapter 16 of 1 Samuel all the way on to the end of it into 2 Samuel. We see this godliness of Samuel. And yet, in a moment of sin, in a moment of fleeting passion, he sinned. And then what can almost be bewildering to to people having known David's history is, then how does he begin to delude and deceive his own mind from the horribleness of the sin and refuse to immediately repent But he does. He doesn't initially, after he has sinned with Bathsheba, it's not like a day later he comes to his senses and says, what have I done? No, he seeks to heighten his sin by murdering the person who might cause it to be uncovered. And then he just continues to live perceivably, perceivably, perhaps this isn't the case, undisturbed by what he's done. And I want us to know as we look at one another and we have relationships with one another, it is very easy to become angry at the sins of somebody both in our congregation or in your family. And we can see some of their behavior and we can think to ourselves, how can't they see what they're doing is wrong? It is so blatant and obvious that what they're doing is sin, and yet they persist in their sin, seemingly undisturbed by their conscience. And every time that that act is renewed, or any time that tone is redisplayed, we sit back and marvel and say, what are they doing? But I'll remind us, let's be careful not to become proud and suspect that we too are not guilty of blotting out the significance of our own sin in our own minds. Sin blinds us. When we're in the middle of sinning, we're not not thinking as God would have us to think. We're not seeing as God would have us to see. And very often, before repentance will ever come to pass, there must be a catalyst which initiates our repentance. The Bible teaches us that being confronted with truth is a vital catalyst to repentance. We can speak of this from a collective sense like we're here this morning. One of the responsibilities of any preacher who tries to proclaim God's word is to preach Sin, righteousness, and judgment, knowing that by presenting the truth of sin, righteousness, and judgment to sinners, the inevitable conclusion that one will come to is I am guilty and I am going to stand judged before God for my lack of righteousness. And so it ought to be the desire of anybody who is proclaiming God's word that we speak truth. You ought to speak truth in your relationships with people. Every relationship you have, you ought to be somebody who does not gloss over the sins of your spouse or of your children, their shortcomings. Listen, we live in a very uh, an attempted insulated culture where we try to put our gloves on and be uh, gentle with everybody. And very often the result of us being gentle with our children and gentle with uh, our relationships is that it only perpetuates the sinfulness of those around us and our own. Yes, we need to display love when we come to, body, come to somebody and speak in truth. Yes, we don't need to be vindictive or angry. But we must speak truth to those we love. And I would contend that there is no greater love that you can, I want to back up, the, one of the greatest forms of love you can show somebody is when you know that that is going to hurt that person speaking love, uh, speaking truth anyways. When somebody says, do you do it? Do I do this? Do I come off proud? What have you said? Well, not only do you come off proud, you might be proud. Ouch. 
But isn't it true? Heard somebody say this week, you need to surround yourself with friends who care about your well-being. I said a few weeks ago, I would pay a lot of money for a good friend, wouldn't you? Because friendship's a hard thing. Friendship can be a painful thing. I think that's why often people avoid friendships, deep friendships. It's because a good friend, when they see a person deviating to the right hand or the left hand, will speak truth into their life. Will articulate God's standard when it doesn't seem to go with their lifestyle. That when asked a question about the way that they parent, about the way that they have a relationship with their spouse, about the way that they do various things that are observable to their friend. When they say, hey, what do you think about what I'm doing? An enemy pacifies them and allows them continue on that path deviated from God's path. But a true friend, hear me this morning, is willing to lose a friendship to speak the truth. Do you love your friend that much? Do you love your friend so much that you know that their sinful reaction to what you say may drive them away from you, but you're determined to love them despite their reaction? Aren't you so glad God does that to us? I mean, I'm so grateful that God does not shy away from telling me in the plainest of terms when I sin. And He does. God is not this vindictive tyrant that holds it over with some lash in His hand beating me with it as Satan would have Him perhaps be depicted as to some of us. But make no bones about it. God is willing to speak to you in a way you'll understand it and confront you with your sins directly. And the Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, that if somebody has wronged you, I'll just read it here. It says, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If there is a sin that your brother has committed against you, That is so significant. And maybe he has not just done that against you. Maybe he's done it against somebody else. I had a friend one time. And he hurt his spouse. I was like physically. He hurt his spouse. Really bad. So... I attempted to talk to him. Not only was I going to say, listen, you violated what God says. You have violated this most sacred union which God has established with your spouse. I can't fellowship and be friends with somebody who lives like that. I got to tell you, I think he knew that. So guess what? He wouldn't talk. He avoided it. Haven't talked to him since then. It's painful. It hurts. I've cried over the loss of that friendship. And yet... With years having passed and no display of repentance ever having been shown. Much to the opposite. Much to the opposite this person has gone. Justifying what they did. And the unfortunate result is it has severed, if they persist, permanently that friendship. Because here's what people often lose sight of. Listen, if, if we're in this church, we're all devoted to obeying God's commands, right? And we're all, as the church is supposed to be, we're interwoven as one body. 
And so as the scriptures teach us, when you hurt, I hurt. When I hurt, you hurt. And so when I hear you've been diagnosed with something, it hurts me. When I learn that you have marital problems, it hurts me. When I know you're under stress because of your children and because of the decisions you're making, it literally hurts me. Because I am one with you. And I love you. And I can't just live my happy old life as though nothing is impacting any of you. Because when I joined this body, I was joined to you. So let's say that I won't pick on somebody like Brother Ron like I often do. For examples, I'll pick on myself here. Let's say I go off the deep end. And I begin to sin in a major way. And you know it's causing harm to my wife and to my children and to all who come in association with me. Knowing what I know now, in this moment, I would be angry with you if you pretend like I'm not doing anything wrong. See, the Bible's, in this very text in Matthew 18, it's tells us we ought to sever fellowship with the person. When a person persists in sin, they ought to feel the withdrawal of God's presence and all of his people that there in that godless isolation, it might provoke them back to God and to repenting of their sin. We as the hands and feet, as the body of Christ can exercise in flesh and blood the same withdrawal that God has done to them spiritually. And let us not give them false assurance. There's all this, you know, there's a big to-do to make. I'm going to be a little longer today. I apologize for that. But there's a big to-do to make about excluding people, right? Exclude somebody. Let's say somebody, I, we're not going to say somebody, I do something terrible. You know, there's all this big issue about excluding and not excluding. And some people, you know, I don't dare ever want my children, child excluded. And we're missing the point if it's all about motions and seconds and voting. And we're missing the point. The point is when somebody is persisting in awful, deep sin, formal and informal fellowship ought to immediately cease. Why? Because as that person is away from anything that looks godly or righteous, if that person has truly been saved, they're going to feel the pain of being separated from God and his people. And what's that pain going to do? Pain is a very valuable thing, isn't it? Oh, it's a tremendously valuable thing. Pain provokes things. And God desires us at times to inflict pain upon one another that we might be provoked to repentance. Saying to a person in that situation, no, I can't go bowling with you. No, I can't come to your house for Christmas like everything's normal. Because it's not normal. And because I know that if I'm walking with the crowd of the wicked, it is in the very least going to lessen my threshold as to what is sinful. I'm going to look on sin more charitably than I ought to. So no, I can't fellowship intimately with you over that. I didn't say be mean. I didn't say be rude. I didn't say scream at the person, not be cordial. But to have a deep relationship, I can't do it. Why? Because the end goal is I want to provoke them to making things right with God. And when they make things right with God, let me assure you, they'll quickly make things right with everybody else whom they've offended. Here's my point. Sometimes it requires us, as it did God sending Nathan. Remember Nathan going to David? Sometimes in our fellow brothers and sisters, God leads us to initiate their repentance by speaking truth into their life. 
can be a hard thing to do, especially if you're a parent. I'm not to this stage in life yet, so please be graceful in what I'm about to say or gracious what I'm about to say, but I would imagine that if you know your kid's doing something they shouldn't, and you know that if you bring it to their attention and you call them on it, I'll give you a common example. Maybe this is inappropriate, maybe it's not, but I think it's a common example that I need to bring up. You got a, a son who has now moved in with his girlfriend. They're living together. They know that you disapprove. Then they come home for Christmas. And they want to stay with dad. They want to stay with mom. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Are they going to get the same room together? Or are you going to clearly say, listen, I can't control what you do outside of my home. But you know before the eyes of God what you're doing is sinful. And I cannot tolerate that in my home. Most of all, because I want you to repent and make things right with God. I say that with humility because I can't imagine how difficult that would be. God forbid you or I, either one, ever have to face that difficult of a situation. But listen, if you love your child and you know what is best for them is them being right with God, they've got to hear truth from somebody even if it hurts. This topic of sin and repentance and forgiveness is real and it hurts. And it gets into those deep, complicated areas of our life. And it's not pleasant, but God has something to say about it. He has principles whereby we can implement that address these things. Very often, I think that we just don't want to address them. We don't want to know them because then it would compel us to do what creates conflict. But then let's consider in in conclusion here for today. We'll have one more message about this next week. Because we'll talk about forgiveness. When do you forgive? Which is the good part. Here is brothers. I want to point this out. They repent for everything they did. And I think I can prove it. I don't have time this morning. Do you remember when they first stand before Joseph? So we, we acknowledge in the very first sermon we said, here's all the people they sinned against. One of those was Joseph, right? So there they're standing before Joseph in this initial encounter. They don't know that he speaks their language. They don't know that he understands them. And as soon as this proposition is put before them, I believe it was Reuben looks at his brothers and says, all of this has come upon us for what we did to Joseph. We heard his agonizing. I believe it's chapter 42. We heard him agonizing and crying out and begging with us as he was being taken, as he was down in that pit. And we heeded not his voice. So there, Joseph hears their genuine repentance, their confession of sin. And when a person is truly repentant, they are not ashamed to confess what they have done. I've been, to, I've been in a church service before where somebody supposedly was repenting of their sin, and they would not even say what they did. They would say something like this, well, I know I've done some wrong things, I know it's hurt some people, please forgive me. And I just want to laugh. That is not repentance. Repentance bears the shame that sin requires of it. Isn't that why when we're lost, we feel shame? We feel like, God, I am sorry for what I am. Not just what I've done, for what I am. Joseph, they repent. Here's another way they repent. They do everything Joseph requires of them. He says, bring your brother. So what do they do? They bring Benjamin with them. They come. You remember when they come and they come that second time back into Egypt and they not only bring enough money to pay back what they didn't pay the first time, they brought double to make up for what they didn't pay the first time. See, the voice of repentance is saying, Not only did I do this wrong, not only did I take a million dollars for you, but I feel such guilt for what I've done. I'm going to restore you, as Zacchaeus says, fourfold for what I have done. 
I can't bear the thought that you had all suffered on my account. So I'm going to suffer that you might benefit. That's one of the greatest displays in the scripture. Zacchaeus, when he says, just restore it all. Give it back to them in abundance. More than what I took. So they have confession. They take action. And then finally, in this scripture that was our scripture text this morning, and I'm, and I'm done. He stands before Joseph, not knowing who he is, having no idea that that's Joseph. And he says, let me tell you the whole story. And at first, do you remember when the brothers sinned? They didn't care how their decision was going to inflict their dad as long as it inflicted pain, right? I mean, they wanted to do what they did because they wanted to hurt, let me get Joseph out of the picture, and probably because they wanted to hurt their dad who was so partial. But now notice in this last text what Judah says. He begins to tell him the whole story. And he says, listen, my dad told us when we came, don't bring Benjamin because if we do, something will befall him and he'll die. And then my father was so grief-stricken over the loss of Joseph, if Benjamin dies or does not come back, Benjamin is going to die, or my dad is going to die. And so Judah stood up and he said, Dad, if I don't bring him back, you can hold me accountable forever. So there he's standing before Joseph. And Joseph says, I want to keep Benjamin here. You all go home. And Judah says, oh, great man, be patient. I know you have the power of Pharaoh, but hear my story. He tells him the whole story. He gets to the end of the story and he says this. Send Benjamin back and keep me instead. Like think about how I will be your slave forever. So that my father doesn't have to experience the anguish that he once did. That is the voice of repentance. I don't care what it costs me. I will make it right. Joseph wisely, and we'll talk about this next week, doesn't wait until they just said what we did was wrong. To reveal himself. He doesn't wait until they bring Benjamin back to reveal himself. But he waits until every sin they had committed had been repented of. And he knew it. He heard it or he saw it. And at that moment, we go into chapter 44. And what does he do? He says, I'm Joseph and I forgive you. We do, our loved ones a great disservice when we prematurely forgive them before they repent. We think we're doing them a favor. We're not. Because repentance is a powerful thing that changes the offender and turns them from sin. And when we allow them to persist in sin and extend our forgiveness, guess where they're going to stay? right in the sin that led to that problem in the first place. Joseph says, not out loud, but he says to himself, I'm not going to forgive them until they have displayed the proper fruits of repentance. And the moment they do, he forgives them. This morning, I think, for me and for you, There's a lot of application in our relationship with one another and with God over the story of Joseph. Over repentance, true repentance of sin. And I pray sincerely that you would love me enough and I would love you enough and you'd love your spouse and your friends enough to demand sufficient fruits of repentance before you just willy-nilly forgive them. Because perhaps their relationship with God depends upon it. Perhaps they need a Nathan to come to them and to write them. And when we all do it, I didn't finish that loop. When we all do it, and that person is isolated and alone, 
there's a lot, lot more likely chance that they're going to be provoked to repentance than if half of us take their side and say, you know what, it's all gone, let's just move on. I can't get off on all of that. I pray that you would see some application. Next week, I think, will be our last week just teaching these series of lessons, and I pray you have found them beneficial. And I hope we can apply that both in a collective way, but also in an individual way towards one another and towards God. That's our message this morning.